Hey, this is producer and editor Dele Johnson welcoming you to another bonus episode of How Art is Born, reflecting on some of the greatest moments in season two. We had 10 amazing, insightful, and inspiring guests on our show this season, and we wanted to relive some of those moments with you again. In this episode of How Art is Born, we're revisiting some highlights from the last five episodes of season two with guests Kami Galofre, Sophie Birkin, Maya Ruth Lee, Finnegan Shannon, and Eric C. We hope you love listening back to these moments as much as we did. To start us off, let's go back to our interview with artist Kami Galofre. Alan and Kami's conversation touches on creating art from a place of optimism, the intersections of art, commercialism, and capitalism, and how Kami defines success for herself as an artist. I'm your host, R. Al Brooks, artist, writer, and professor. Today I'm joined by Denver-based visual artist and educator, Kami Kagofre. Say hello. Hi. Yeah. How was that? Did that I do was it? great. Ah, nice. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. Uh, I guess to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do? Yeah. Um, I'm a visual artist. I am foremost a painter. You could say that's my trade. Um, but lately I've been working with a lot of installation arts, which has mm. been really exciting to yeah. kind of work beyond the picture plane. Um, but a little bit of background on myself. I'm originally from Colombia, mm. born in Bogota, uh, and I grew up in Quito, Ecuador. Okay. Yeah. So Latina here. <laughs> Were you, uh, well, uh, since we're starting now, let's talk about like, uh, did you, did you get involved in art? Well, I guess my first question yes. is, what was the first art that moved you in your life? Mm. And it doesn't have to be like a specific thing. You can say like a type or a period or whatever. No, I actually do have a specific, oh, nice. yeah, like, mem- like memory triggered. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. Um, weirdly enough, uh, my parents had this painting and it was of like a plaza, you could say, full of like different people and colors. And it was like the people were very abstract. So it was kind of like a big picture hmm. and I remember sitting in front of it yeah. for hours huh. and my dad would sit with me my mom would sit with me and I would just sit in front of it and just like imagine like the story that yeah. that piece was was telling and it was kind of like a folk art piece okay. you could say um, who knows where that painting is they probably <laughs> still have it honestly because it meant so much to me when I was like a toddler yeah um, well why do you what do you think spoke to you about it like what I I think a lot of it was like the colors and like it was so abstract but I could still put myself into it and so like there was like a lot of movement I don't know what was so magical about it but I still like it's one of those things that as a kid I have I have that as like one of my first memories and I can still visually see it in my head and I guess that's probably the first art piece that truly moved me but that's cool okay so yeah was there a point for you where you were like, I'm going to do that? Or was it like always with you that you wanted to create art? I didn't know, I think, at that time that I wanted to create art. Yeah. My mom is an artist. Oh, okay. And so I've always been around. What kind of art did your mom do? Um, a lot of um, craft pieces. Okay. Um, actually, don't know how to answer that. <laughs> um, yeah, she 
Yeah, mostly craft, I guess you could okay. say. Um, but she would do like decorative pieces. That's the word. Okay. So she would do decorative work and um, for either like other people's homes or whatnot. But she was really skilled in creating realistic pieces as well. Okay. So I grew up in a studio. Um, so she had her own studio and I would always see her like paint or draw um, or make costumes for me. Uh. So she was very crafty, very artistic. And I think that's just kind of like something that I always like look towards yeah. but i didn't really know that it was like an actual like career path you could say okay um because she also she was an architect by trade so that's what she did yeah as a job right yeah so i kind of like got that from her but when i was little i was like i just want to be an astronaut i don't know i was like living yeah. in the space i'm an aquarius so oh, nice. <laughs> i was in the stars yeah do you have a message in mind when you're creating art or mm. is it just completely open and you're okay no matter how people interpret it yeah i think i'm going to answer that question a little bit backwards okay um just because something came to mind yeah i think that's something that i've always up until recently kind of came to terms with uh -huh. um was the idea that art and good art should come from a place of pain or mm. hurt okay. or whatever right. and there is a lot of incredible art that yeah. comes from those places my art has always come from a really with a place from positivity hmm. and not one that is meant to be like i'm not trying to tell you to smile or be happy or whatnot <laughs> you know i'm not trying to like say anything particular about that but in my experience the best work i've ever done has always been when i'm like clear-minded positive yeah. engaged with it so in terms of like a message and what I'm trying to say, a lot of the times is to pay attention, hmm. relax, enjoy, yeah. and like let the, let the vibe like welcome you, mm -hmm. I guess, which is why I've led a lot to like this installation art because I can do that a little bit more obviously. Um, there are different themes that go into my work that mm -hmm. are a little, you can say a little bit more academic, yeah. but without all that BS, <laughs> in a way, like, I think that making art from a positive place that is just something beautiful and emotional in that positive way yeah. is important. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because I, I find that people um, don't always recognize that being optimistic is a choice mm -hmm. and it requires a particular type of strength. Yeah. You know, it, particularly if you are aware of the world around you. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times people think that optimism is um, it comes from ignorance or mm -hmm. weakness mm -hmm. or or privilege. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm kind of like in this transition place in my studio practice where I'm trying to work on different things and new things that without the stress of how they're going to be received right. in a way. But that's very recent. Well, granted yeah. yeah well now you bring up a lot of really interesting things right because there's this whole idea of um art as commerce right like mm -hmm. uh because I, especially i would say in america it feels like we're uh, raised with this idea that art has no value unless you can sell it or make a lot of money absolutely out of it. and um i think it is good to present the paradigm that if you don't want to create art to sell then you can just work a job and create art because it's healing to you yeah. or because um, it's cathartic to you. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes that paradigm shifts. Sometimes you want to sell more of it. You know, yeah. like, it just kind of depends. But. And it's always like a, 
a give and take and yeah. a balance. And, you know, I always tell friends that are, oh, I just make art as a hobby. Mm-hmm. And it's great because like, I also make art as a hobby. Right. Like what distinguishes me from you is that maybe I've sold a couple more pieces than you, mm-hmm. but we're all artists and we're all creating. Right. And it just depends how much time you're able to put into the work, how much time you're able to put it out in the world as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a balance of switching between that. You yeah. Know? I mean, capitalism is a very real thing, so we have to think about that. But it is, yeah. And in think- the most purest form, we like to make art because we want to make art. Right, right. <laughs> and if you decide to make a living at it, then you can approach it differently. Absolutely. You know, like I have friends who uh, are like big indie comics people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like some of the hallmarks of indie comics is that they're largely they're less accessible art-wise, less accessible story-wise. They're, mm-hmm. You know, just a lot of like, um, it's not like reading Superman or something, sure. right? And it's fine. Like, yeah. It's great. But I think if you are making those kind of comics but are mad that you're not doing Superman sales, then you may maybe think exactly. differently about how you approach yeah, it. Yeah, you know? it's like how you, how you think about commercialism yeah. with your own work. And how much of it can you, how much of it can you engage in and still hold on to your voice? Right. You know, which is always a difficult balance. Yes, because you get to a commercial point where you're like, oh, no. Yeah. Or the opposite, where you're like, no one gets me. Right. (laughs) So it's like a nice balance. Yeah. And I guess all of that really ends up being sort of the journey Mm -hmm. as an artist. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So Mm -hmm. you said that uh, when you were a kid, you didn't necessarily think of yourself as an artist. Uh, When when was the point that you decided, oh, I'm going to do this or it means something to me? Um, I don't think is that I didn't know that I was an artist. I think I've always been creative and mm-hmm. I always had art. Okay. And so I think when I was a kid and growing up and what I, and whatnot, art was always something that perhaps I took a little bit for granted mm. because I was naturally talented. Okay. Um, through like whatever validation or praise you could say, but I was also really proud of whatever works I did in high school or yeah. whatnot. When I went to college, I really wanted to pursue science. Mm. I had an amazing science teacher in, in high school and he just opened this world for me yeah. and I thought it was so cool. What kind of science? Just biology. Okay. And so I was always like, oh, biology, ecology, like, you know, the ocean, like anything that had to do with that. I was Sounds like- like the elements of your art. Yes, exactly. Okay. Nice. Um, so I, I did want to explore that. And like, I love seeing nature documentaries even to this day because they're so fascinating to me. Mm. Um, and then in college, I had the opportunity to go to a liberal arts school so I could explore different things. Yeah. And my schedule always ended up being like science and art, science and art. I took chemistry. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, this might not work for me. (laughs) And it's not that I didn't like chemistry. My just tiny little brain could not get through some concepts. Hmm. And I still have a degree, like a minor in environmental science from Hmm. that. But it was one of those things where I'm like, you know what? Why don't I major in what I'm good at and see what happens? And the thing with art is that there's no clear trajectory, right? Right. There's no path on how to become an artist. There's things that I eventually kind of played around again with this idea of commercialism and capitalism is like, how can I apply my creativity to a job that would give me some money? And so I went through like maybe potentially architecture, maybe potentially graphic design. And I kind of just thought through all of that and I just came coming back to painting and I was like, 
I can't work for a client. Hmm. Like I can't work for somebody else. I have to make it for myself. I want right. to have the creative choices for myself. I guess I'm really fascinated by you being in this period of creating work that is personally fulfilling. Mm -hmm. um, what feels like a success to you? Mm. You know, like when something's finished, how do you like, or does that even matter to you? I think a successful work for me would be something that, I mean, it sounds so basic, but something that just like makes me relax a little bit or yeah. like, or like smile or like, or like whenever I'm impressed by myself, huh. I guess it's just like, oh, hell yeah, that was successful yeah. in whatever ways. Um, but I think in working with the self-fulfillment, I want to leave room for play yeah. and experimentation. And that's something that maybe the goal isn't success, mm -hmm. right? The goal might be just to trust that process as mm. cliche as that sounds. Yeah. And maybe the success is learning from that process right now, currently. That is great. Yeah. yeah I think that, cause that, that applies to like even life, right? Like mm -hmm. the, the idea of, um, seeing the value in the journey, mm -hmm. you know, cause like, we can always be very focused on when I get to X, mm -hmm. when I reach this point, mm -hmm. you know, then I'll finally be happy. Yeah. When most of life is the journey. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> Some gems from our conversation with Kami Galofre. Our next interview was with Denver based British born illustrator, Sophie Birkin. Sophie has worked with clients like Apple, Google, Nike, and Planned Parenthood. You can also find her work in Meow Wolf's Denver location, Convergence Station. Alan and Sophie talk about how she got into illustration in the first place, her creative process, and themes that she explores in her work. Today I'm joined by Denver-based illustrator Sophie Birkin. Say hello. Hello. <laughs> okay, so Sophie, to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about who you are? Yeah, um, I am a British illustrator and I've lived here for about eight years and I've been working as an illustrator for about five years and I guess I'm also an artist, but I'm only just learning to call myself that. <laughs> well, okay, so that's interesting. What is the distinction for you between illustrator and artist? I think illustration, I don't want to say illustration is inherently commercial because I really love and respect illustration like uh -huh. as an art form, you know? But I think that there's like uh, like a very big element of design to it, right? Where it's like it's it's for a purpose yeah. and it's meant to, you know, to illustrate something, right? To like tell a story in some way and uh. to like convey information. Whereas I feel like fine art doesn't automatically have to do that. Like it right. can, but I feel like there's a little bit more kind of leniency with it. Hmm. And I love both very much, but I feel like... It, because I used to work at like a graphic design agency and my background was in fashion design and just like that whole kind of design world that yeah. like working like creating art to a brief is something I've done for a long time something I'm really comfortable with and like pushing myself out of my comfort zone to make much more personal work that's more like vulnerable and maybe not as like uh not as pleasing to everyone automatically like uh, it's something I just really want to make myself do now yeah yeah do you find that you're taking like uh so all the work that you've done before, you said to a brief, like it was something where somebody gave you some description that had to serve some function. Right, exactly. So now in creating your personal stuff, are you like writing out a description of what you want or like how are you approaching it? It's funny, I actually do do that and I hadn't 
huh. thought about it in that way that I am essentially writing a brief for myself <laughs> because I feel like anytime I want to do something, there's always a lot that I have been like learning about around it. It's like something I take a really big interest in. Yeah. And then because I have so many thoughts, I just want to contain them all within one place and like try to understand myself better. Huh. So I do end up like writing out kind of like, I guess the way I would want to describe a piece of work once it was finished yeah, and kind of going backwards from that. Huh. Yeah. So your illustration stuff, mm-hmm. is that digital or traditional? It's all digital. Okay. Yeah. And I love digital illustration. Yeah. I'm not trying to get away from it, but I think something I really enjoy about it is how well it can translate to other mediums, right? Like whenever I do murals, mm-hmm. I create digital illustrations and then project and paint them. So they're like super clean and I know exactly what they're gonna look like. Yeah, huh. Well, okay, so when I'm I'm looking at your art, I noticed that um, there's very, well, it it has a very distinct voice. Um, Even though you're illustrating as you described it, like it's still very much your voice in a a Mm -hmm. strong way and uh, highly emotive, powerful colors, that kind of stuff. Thank you. Oh, no problem. But I wonder, like, um, how you got there? You know, like, what what kind of started you down this path? What spoke to you in the early days of art? I think, like, when I was... So I I got, like, very, very lucky with my old job because I was originally trying to do, like, lean more towards, like, graphic design. And my boss at the time was like, hey, like, you're pretty good at drawing. Like, do you want to try kind of being our illustrator? And I was like, fuck yeah, that sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, And so I got, like, tons and tons of practice in, but I was working in different styles all the time, right? Mm. Like, they, like, our kind of art director and creative director would, like, figure out the direction they wanted to take. And they would give me a lot of, like, source material of a lot of, like, different artists maybe it was like historic stuff or just like someone else's and you know just be like do this kind of a thing right um which was great and a really good learning experience Mm. and then I kind of got to a point where like I was I mean I have this Pinterest board you know that's like illustration (laughs) inspiration that has about nine million images in it and I started to feel really like itchy about like oh there's all this work I love so much and I don't feel like I have a distinctive voice at all yeah Um, And I started, like, trying to develop it and, like, seeing what I liked in other people's work. Like, not in the way of copying it, obviously, but just, like, all these different elements of, oh, I really like, like, how this person, like, frames up their figures. And I Mm. like the way this person uses color and line. And just kind of spiraled from there. And I think, yeah, it's, like, developed over time, obviously. Huh. Well, this is really interesting because I feel like a lot of artists um, in uh, various disciplines are like, how do I discover what my voice is? Yeah. And so for you, it was uh, you put together the things that resonated with you mm-hmm. and then sort of processed them through your own creative soul. Yeah. And yeah. this is what came out. It's a very, I think I undertook it very like methodically. Huh. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like that's uh, sort of a common theme with how you approach your art? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Right I think part of the reason I've been so hesitant to call myself an artist for so long is like when I was in like more formal art education, like even in high school and things like that, like the way that. I understood art and was taught to understand art was as this very kind of like loose free process and you know you Mm. see like artists in movies and they're just like throwing paint at canvases (laughs) and it's like this raw expression of emotion and I kind of don't really think like that and I think a lot more like you know not I don't know how do I phrase this in a good way like I like to put things in boxes you know I could never Mm. make a sketchbook that was like just amazing like drawings and pictures and just uh, this big collage it was always like kind of neatly laid out and I 
really thought that was to my detriment. And I think when I realized like, no, I can use that to my advantage and hmm. make that work to create what I want to create is when I started being able to develop my own stuff. That's cool. You're really touching on something. Like, so I find um, a lot of artists, because inspiration is so um, unwieldy and unpredictable, mm-hmm. uh, they're afraid that any type of technique that's put on top of it or any type of order or um, formality is mathematizing the art too much and like it will take away the purity of it. Right, exactly. Uh, I run into that with writing. Like um, for me, I have to outline things very like um, very formally in the way that you're describing. Yeah, exactly. Um, but then I tend to think of the outline as like a map, you know, like if like if you and I decided we were going to drive to Mexico or something like that, right? right. We would have we could plot out where we're going to go. But while we're following that plot, we can say, oh, wait, there's a sign that says world's biggest piece of yarn. And we can stop and be like, check that out. Right. You know, Yeah, exactly. That's exactly how I like to go on vacation. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, so like when you are um, coming up with a formal plan for how you approach art, do you find new things, like new things come up in the actual execution of it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Like, um, there's this piece, collection of pieces, I guess, that I've been working on and just thinking about, I mean, kind of daydreaming about for the better part of like two years, you know, okay. and the whole time I was kind of concepting it, I want, is that a word? Concepting? Conceptualizing <laughs> yes. is what I meant to say. Um, the whole time I was conceptualizing it, I was thinking it was going to be like kind of quilts, right? Uh-huh. And I started putting it together and I was like, I want so much more going on here because now I'm looking at all these other fabric artists and I'm like, why not bring all of these like historically feminized crafts in, right? Why not do like beading and embroidery yeah, and like painting on like leather and things like that. And so like, yeah, I think once you start rolling on something, you just you know, your idea changes a million times and right. snowballs into something much bigger than it starts as. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So for me, structure is a way to um, execute or like to carry me forward into places because, you know, you can't depend on inspiration. It's fleeting by nature. Right. right? And so um, there's so many people who come up to artists and are like, uh, I have an idea for a thing and this idea is revolutionary. I just need somebody to do to make it, you know. But like the idea is not the hard part. The making it is the hard Absolutely. part. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so they're like, I, you know, they're coming to a musician. Oh, I got a great song, but you got to write it, you know, or like. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, and so it's in, I think it's interesting to hear about like how different artists, which essentially what this whole podcast is about, how different artists approach their art and how um, what things are like, OK, you know, because I think a lot of us come into like this expectation of like, this is how it should be, as you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And then you start finding the things that are true to you and what works for you. Yeah. And suddenly a whole new world kind of opens yeah, up. Yeah, exactly. So um, what kind of themes are you finding yourself interested in exploring as an artist now? You know, obviously, like, all of my work is very queer. And mm. I feel like that is what people most often, like, want to talk to me about. But yeah. I feel like anything I made would be. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, even if I was like, I'm going to do fantasy comic strips, they would right. still be super queer because yeah. that's just like the world around me, right? Mm-hmm. That's like my people, you know? Um, but one of the big themes that I'm super interested in at the moment is like domestic labor huh. and like the overlap between domestic labor and like artifice and industry. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm like, how can I summarize this without going off on a huge tangent for an hour? <laughs> like, 
I think it's really interesting that we have this whole kind of mid-century period that we think about as this like relic of the past, right? Mm -hmm. Where you have like all this new technology being developed and it's all described as being able to like liberate women from the burden of domestic labor, mm -hmm. right? You've got like washing machines and like jello and things like that, mm -hmm. right? But like what they're really doing is they're just like raising the bar. So it's like, this will stop you from having to do all this housework. But what they're doing is then they're selling you this idea of what a clean house should be uh -huh. or what a good mother should be, uh -huh. you know? So you have Jello being like, we have this amazing convenience food. Are you tired of like standing over the stove and cooking for hours? Like <laughs> this will be so quick and easy, but they're advertising it with this like, you know, incredible like towering, jello monstrosity with shrimp climbing <laughs> up the sides and something that would take like fucking hours to make right. right and it's all kind of under this like veneer of artifice of like you know these ads that you look at from the 50s of like happy housewives and yeah. things like that right and i think like we're all familiar with those images and like some of them are so explicitly misogynist that Definitely. they're like self-satirizing right? right so we can look at them and it's easy to try and create distance and be like oh my god can you believe we used to be like that right but it's like, I think that that pattern has repeated itself with every generation, hmm. right? Because if you look at like the 80s, you have like women like overwhelmingly entering the workforce like more than ever before. Yeah. And there's this idea of this kind of, you know, like bombshell in a power suit who can like have it all. Right. But like, you know, under the surface of that, women were doing just as much domestic labor as before, doing both things. And then you have like, beauty standards and like diet culture like skyrocketing so it's like yeah this like burden of labor has actually like been increasing huh. and then you come to now and there's this thing that i've seen people calling the like fourth shift okay. of like you're doing the women are still statistically doing the majority of the housework mm. right still generally like in the workforce mm. um there are still all these kind of like beauty standards to adhere to. But then on top of that, there's like the burden of like emotional labor of like being like a therapist and a yeah. mother to a partner. Right. Mm. And I just think like you look at that now and I think about all these kind of like family influences mm. and you have these like very fucking hardworking women who are like filming themselves, making all these like, beautiful lunches for their children <laughs> and their husbands and like neatly stacking name brand products in these little boxes that you can buy on their Amazon storefront, you know, right. and it's a full-time job on mm. top of a full-time job. Yeah. And it's seen as really glamorous and aspirational. And I'm just like the way that those all connect to each other and the way that pattern keeps repeating itself, but we still try to distance ourselves from it is really interesting to me. So yeah. that's what the things I want to make are about. That was a good explanation. I'm sorry I, for I know that was you very long. Sure. Hey, well, um, Sophie, I appreciate you taking time to talk to me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. It was a cool conversation. Mm -hmm. This was your first time talking into a microphone. I know. You it's did very such a good job. Big. Thank you. <laughs> That's a stupid thing to say. <laughs> Some highlights from our interview with illustrator Sophie Birkin. Coming up next, some clips from our most popular episode of Season 2, an interview with Salida-based artist Maya Ruth Lee. Alan and Maya talk about her early years of life in Nepal, taking a 10-year break from making art, and experimentation and playfulness being a key part of her creative and expressive process. Today I'm joined by Salida, Colorado-based artist Maya Ruth Lee. Say hello. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I appreciate you being here. So uh, Maya, just to start us off, can you tell us a little about who you are? Well, um, I am a mother, I'm an artist. Um, I 
currently live in Colorado um, as of two and a half years ago. And um, I'm a thinker. Uh, mm. I like to make stuff. Um, <laughs> and I, yeah, that's that's about it. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's a good baseline. So I want to know uh, what what was sort of your, do you remember the first time that art spoke to you in a particular way or inspired you? You know, it's funny how art or, or how I was introduced to art. Um, hmm. It wasn't really introduced to me as art, but hmm. it was introduced to me through culture and I guess living. But yeah, I grew up in Kathmandu, Nepal. Okay. And just by being in Nepal was just full of inspirations um, hmm. through uh, celebrations, through tradition, um, just walking the street, just knowing Nepali people, yeah. um, knowing their traditions um, and their religion. It's just part of life, I think. And just by, by being there, by growing up, being there at such a young age, Mm -hmm. um, I was there from about five years old until 18. Okay. So it was kind of the most spongy years. Yeah, know? like formative I, years, definitely. Mm -hmm. I really soaked it all in. That mm. was my introduction to sort of creativity, I think. Okay, so that's interesting. Um, the idea that it wasn't introduced as art, that you absorbed it through culture. So I guess what specifically moved you? What, what did you feel most connected with and all of that? I was really moved by um, mostly people, but, hmm. you know, it really, you know, art wasn't hanging on the walls in museums or galleries. I had very little access to anything like that. Uh -huh. um, in Kathmandu now, there are a number of museums and contemporary art galleries, but when I was there, in the late 80s and 90s mm -hmm. that just wasn't a thing you uh, know so for me it was really just by participating in the everyday activities in life and by being around people um you know i grew up watching bollywood and yeah. eating nepali food and uh walking by temples and secretly joining in in ceremonies um uh, and you know, in Nepal, art is prevalent in the in, by way of religion in terms of, you know, uh, monasteries, murals, um, tanka paintings, crafts and arts. So it was really just like everywhere. Everywhere I turned to was like a beautiful shrine, right. uh, you know, kind of decorated with, you know, incredible ornaments. And uh. I would turn around there would be a beautiful temple with like beautiful ceremonies um the streets were filled with color and and beautiful scents and to me i that was it, it's wild to think back on how that was my everyday life yeah. um yeah and only by leaving did i actually realize how unique and special that was I wonder, uh, was there a clear moment for you where uh, you decided you were going to make your own art or whether you identified it as art 
or was that just kind of always like an organic thing for you? Um, it's funny because, you know, I think my parents being very conservative Christian, I uh-huh. think in their mind, they really wanted to rear me towards that direction. Hmm. But we just happened to be living in Nepal where it was so rich with culture. <laughs> right. And so it was impossible for them. You know, it was hmm. just like I was seeped in it. Um, but I remember, you know, I think as part of their uh, just sort of more like didactic or kind of more of like a disciplinary um, uh, approach, they put me right. into an art school which wasn't actually an art school. It was um, a monastery where Buddhist monks painted tonka paintings. <laughs> huh. Wow. And tonka paintings, if you're not familiar with it, they're um, a style or a type of painting that is done by uh, Buddhist monks and used for very specific um, like meditation processes or you know depictions of deities and gods um and they're beautifully painted in terms of like you know they it's it's prepared for days the pigments are all natural um the brushes are used with you know horse hair or yak hair and you know these monks actually uh, sit and paint these beautifully elaborate paintings for over the course of three sometimes six months Hmm. so it becomes part of their meditation process so they kind of like ushered me into this process Hmm. and during that time I just remember at first I was like oh my god like how am I going to sit through this I have to like draw line by line it's very delicate process um and then through it I feel like I kind of gained this confidence of oh I kind of get it, you know, hmm. um, this is a really beautiful process. And I was very young at the time. So um, I think they accidentally put me into this situation where I became more connected with, with, with Buddhism or the process of, yeah. of art making in that kind of spiritual realm. So I think that was my first connection to art making in a way. Okay, so you had this education in arts um, that obviously uh, taught you some things, and then you had the 10-year break. You come to New York, you come back into it. How did you find what your medium was going to be or what kind of art you wanted to make? I started just like, you know, looking for materials that were accessible to me. The very first piece I made, can I explain it to you? (laughs) Yeah, I believe in you. I actually ended up showing it at the MCA Denver 10 years after. But the first piece I ever made, um, you know, I had this, it was was actually from a dream, weirdly. I had a dream. I walked into the studio of this person I know, and she had this zine that she made you know Uh and each page was heat sensitive so you would touch it and the colors would change yeah it was like this really tripped out thing and i was like oh my god that is so smart i wish i had thought of that 
And I woke up from that dream and I was like, oh my God, it was a dream. <laughs> <laughs> I can do this. I can do this. And so I started <laughs> researching if anything like that existed, like right. heat sensitive thermochromic materials. Uh, and alas, yes, there there is, you know, fabrics, yes. papers that change color with touch. And so I thought about it for a while and I decided to make an installation, which was basically an electrical heat blanket plugged in hmm. on the wall. Okay. And laid over it was the thermochromic fabric, which was in different colors, say red. Hmm. If you lay it over the electrical heat blanket, the part that changes color is the wire that's embedded in the electrical heat blanket. Hmm. And the wire looks like a wine yeah, like snake. A, like an S, yeah. Or, um, and yeah, it just goes S, like this, uh, you know? Curly, yeah. And that part turns to blue, for example. Uh, and that was it. Huh. And I was like, okay. I have no idea what this is. <laughs> <laughs> like, what the fuck am I supposed to do with this now? <laughs> <laughs> but that was my first piece I made in New York. And yeah. I remember just being like, I'm just going to try stuff out. Huh. I'm just going to like experiment you know pick up materials but whatever i could afford to i hear your exploration in in these pieces so i'm interested about what it meant to you right because um i'm talking to a lot of artists who had a lot of struggle with believing that they were an artist and um, then have a struggle with thinking that their art should should do something um and whatever that is, whether it's um, share a message with the world or uh, whatever, you know, but it seems like for you, the creation of the art is a large part of what is uh, significant to you. Is there, is there something else? I think that's, I mean, you know, again, it kind of stems from curiosity first. Mm -hmm. I almost, it's, you know, when I see or maybe come up with maybe an idea, I have yeah. to try it out. Huh. Like, is, is it going to work? Like, is it going to look okay? Right. Um, and then, you know, there's like a bunch of things I've tried that have never seen the light of day because right. it sucks, you know? <laughs> um, but I think by trying out and experimenting, it invokes like this playfulness yeah. that huh. is very um, private for me, I think. Hmm. And... If that reaches outside of myself, then awesome. Yeah. You no, know? that's like huh. I I couldn't I couldn't be more happy. I love that. But if I am able to keep that for myself, that's also very special for me. That's a really cool place to be as a creative person. I think so, and I try to remind myself that you know, as I get older and I kind of, you know accumulate more experiences i don't want mm. to lose that you know approach of, of of playing i gotta say maya though your approach to it is uh, very um it's inspiring honestly because I, I feel like your forgiveness or, or gentleness with yourself like allowing yourself to just create and not not uh like you have to fit into some standard or it just seems like you just let your creation be your creation and uh i just think it's cool 
Thank you. you air high five. Air high five. There. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I feel blessed, you know, um, because with that comes a lot of support and people that love you. Um, because, you know, I'm not saying that I'm, you know, I don't have my days when I think everything is bullshit, you know? Yeah, right. And I want to throw everything against the wall. But, mm -hmm. I'm just, you know, I think I've been blessed enough to have a steady sort of, a steady career. It's not been fast. Mm -hmm. It's not been slow. It's just mm -hmm. at the right pace, I think, for me. Yeah. And, you know, in my mind, I've always, even from the beginning, my mantra is I love, I'm in it for the slow burn, you know? Mm. If I'm able to do this age 80, 90, until I die, I'd be yeah. stoked. Huh. <laughs> I'd be That's very stoked, you know? I'd be, I'd, I'd be a lucky person if I could do that. And so in order for me to do that, I know that I need to pace myself. I need to really yeah. just take it slow, take it easy. You hit him with the uh, tortoise and tortoise versus the hare philosophy. Yeah, yeah. I'm nice. in no rush. I'm, nice. I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Maya, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. It's been oh, a well, great conversation. Thanks for having me. That was fun. Sorry if I just blab on. <laughs> Hey, you know, that's, that's, it's just kind of the cool thing to be able to talk about your process and journey and stuff like that. Some moments from our interview with artist Maya Ruth Lee. The penultimate episode of How Art is Born Season 2 featured artist Shannon Finnegan, who now goes by Finnegan Shannon. Finnegan is another of the many artists who have been on How Art is Born to have their work featured in an MCA Denver exhibition. In their conversation with Alan, Finnegan talks about how their disability has influenced their artwork, issues around accessibility in the art world, and not keeping themselves in a box as an artist and creator. Today I'm joined by Brooklyn-based artist Shannon Finnegan. Say hello. Hi. Okay, so to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about who you are? Yes. Um, I consider myself a project-based artist, mm. so I'm often kind of... Um, working with a set of ideas and thinking about a form for those to take and then thinking about a new set of ideas and a form for those to take and kind of so on like that. Um, I think about, I think sometimes there's this word visual art. Mm -hmm. I think my practice is related to the visual arts, but I've also been doing, um, I'm disabled and I think about cross-disability solidarity a lot and I've been kind of um, inquiring a little bit about about centering visual visuals in um, art making and so I also like the term um, studio artist um, ah. kind of someone who's yeah in in a room <laughs> making some things <laughs> um, but yeah I, I think an important uh, piece of my practice is that I'm disabled and that's something that comes into my work a lot and thinking about um, access and especially I think a lot of the forms of access in the world are come from these compliance models so they're they're mm. this very kind of check a box minimum effort 
um, kind of approach to access. And I'm really interested in access that is creative and collaborative and an ongoing process and rooted in uh, relationships and things like that. Um, so that's something that I'm always, I'm often thinking about my work is kind of uh, experimenting with different forms of, of access and um, yeah. Okay. Well, cool. So uh, we're only going to be as specific about your disability as you want to be, but I'm most interested in how it uh, works with your art. Um, so for the purposes of that question, has a disability been lifelong or was it something that came uh, sort of later in life? Yeah, I've, I've been disabled since I was born, but I okay. think my awareness as like a politically disabled person or as, as a disabled person kind of understanding my experience as socially and culturally shaped mm -hmm. was more in adulthood. I was, I was often, um, I actually, I was thinking about this recently. I actually knew a lot of other disabled people growing mm -hmm. up, like kind of family friends and, and um, other disabled kids and stuff like that. But I wasn't really encouraged to make connections between our experiences. Mm. Um, and I was, I was really pushed to try to be as kind of quote unquote normal as possible. Oh, that's um, a thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I'll also say like my, my disability is uh, like mobility related. So it's mostly impacting kind of like walking, standing, movement, okay. um, muscular, skeletal stuff. Well, so then uh, we'll come back around to that as a theme. But I, I, I often ask like, what was the moment that art first spoke to you? And then also, what was the moment that you knew that you wanted to create art? And for some people, that moment is the same moment. For some people, it's different. I think... So I grew up in a pretty creative household. Um, mm. There are kind of artists and creative people um, going back, like my grandmas on both sides were were artists, or not like artists as a career, but were, were artists. And, yeah. um, and so it was a big part of my childhood and kind of just like what I was doing to entertain myself as a kid. Like I remember if there was no school one day, I would go with my mom to her office and one of the things I would do is I would make cards for all of her coworkers during the mm. day. And then at the end of the day, we would go and um, go around and deliver them. Um, so things like that, where I was just like drawing and making things was a big part of how I was kind of like passing time as a kid. Mm. And so I actually can't really remember a time where like that kind of making wasn't a part of my life, mm. but I think it wasn't until later that, I understood that art could also really um, say something or be a, a kind of vehicle for communicating ideas. And so, yeah, I think it was at a moment where I was thinking about art in more conceptual ways and exploring that more and thinking of it as maybe a bigger part of my life um, mm. rather than something that I was um, doing alongside other things. Though I still feel like I'm doing art alongside many other things. Okay, so uh, you do uh, work that is, can be big, it can, it can use different mediums. Um, where do you start? Like, are you starting with the message or are you starting with the art and then sort of discovering what the message is in the art? 
Maybe, yeah, maybe I'll talk about a specific project. Um, So I have this series of work that was at MCA Denver um, Mm. that's called uh, Do You Want Us Here or Not? And it's benches and seating. And Mm. so that was a project where I had been going to museums in New York City and I had just been feeling so frustrated with the lack of seating and places Mm. to sit and rest in the galleries. As you know, it's this big fancy museum. There's tons of space. They've spent tons of money on all these different things. They have all this messaging of like, we want to be welcoming. We want to be inclusive. And then even something like so simple as a bench is not there. And so I... First, so I was really thinking about that feeling and just feeling frustrated about that. And the first thing that I did was this little drawing that just was a very simple line drawing of a bench that said, this exhibition has asked me to stand for too long, Sid, if Mm. you agree. And I was like, oh, yeah, like maybe the, the piece itself can also comment on the space and on the kind of conditions of the space. And... At that time, I had no idea how to make a bench or even really what to ask someone who knew how to make a bench, how to make it. Um, And so I made that drawing in 2017. And then I started researching, you know, just kind of like putting out feelers or like, you know, talking to a friend who had knew a little bit more and be like, okay, how would you do it? Or how, you know, and so I was kind of like collecting ideas for how you can make a bench Um, and then um, in 2019 there was like an exhibition opportunity and I was like okay I'm just gonna make two like that's what I can afford that's what I feels like somewhat manageable though they're still like big objects that are hard to store Um, and so I made two and I painted them myself and um, the other one in that set said um I'd rather be sitting, Sid, if you agree, like just very open-ended. So it was kind of a long process to get from the idea to um, an actual object. And actually, I made a zine in the middle. That was kind of my first step was like, okay, I can't build a bench, but I can draw some ideas for a bench and I can put those in a zine. Um, And... Yeah. And then I think once those pieces were built and in the world, I started to understand way more about them, about, you know, talking to other people about their experiences of galleries and the kind of talking to curators about why there isn't more seating and and stuff like that. And um, understanding that there is kind of a strategy there in terms of like using the artwork itself to get more seating into the space. It kind of like works around some of the norms of exhibition design. Hmm. Um, yeah. It's really great to hear that process. Um, okay. Shannon, have you ever, did you ever have a point where you struggled with calling yourself an artist? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I love to hear about that. Cause you know, I think there's just this way that um, we as creative people, have these sort of intangible goals or like when this happens, then I'll be real. And so, yeah, I want to, I want to know what that was like for you. I think, yeah, I think I really had this idea that to be an artist, it had to be your career or it had to be your job. Mm -hmm. And that's just such a silly idea because that's, 
you know, when right out of college, I worked at an artist residency program, and it was really amazing because I got to know a lot of artists who were like five or seven years older than me, and I had such an abstract idea of what an artist was at that time, and then I was able to meet all these artists and understand like, oh, okay, what what does that actually look like in your life? And like, definitely one of the things I learned is that like almost everyone has a day job and like everyone's trying to find the day job that they like the best or like, you know, or hate the least. Yeah. Hate the least. (laughs) (laughs) Cobble different things together, like a little of this, a little of that. Um, And I think that was something that helped me understand like, oh, this isn't about having a certain career level or, or something like that. And it's more about what is my, focus or what where am I putting my energy or how I want to relate to the world and when I started talking to people being like oh I'm an artist it was so cool to then see where the conversation would go from there and Mm -hmm. um get like kind of opens up a space to like talk more about my ideas or or, um share Mm -hmm. some things that I'm thinking about in that space or or things like that makes me think about there's this movie uh by Lake Bell, uh, actress. It's called In a World, and uh, the premise of the movie is that her father is uh, like a movie trailer guy, like in a world, right? <laughs> uh, and she wants to sort of follow in his footsteps, and everybody's saying, you know, like as a woman, you can't do it, and things like that. Uh, the, the movie's okay, but hearing Lake Bell talk about making it, she said that the way she came to it was that she found that. Uh, she was sort of raised to not speak in her real voice, to speak in like a high baby voice uh, as a woman. And uh, she went through a process of sort of recovering her own voice, Mm. which uh, obviously is fascinating for for that specifically, but also I think as an artist, um, particularly as an artist who uh, is marginalized, as you mentioned, there is this process of finding what is the most authentic version of me? What is my truest voice? So it's cool to hear, you know, you talk about uh, what it meant to you and finding your way in that same thing. Yeah. And I feel like that's such an ongoing process for me. You know, I'm Hmm. always finding new pockets of things where I'm like, oh, right. Like that's some kind of like norm or expectation that I got from somewhere else that actually isn't serving me or I can try doing it in a different way or I can experiment with this Mm. and it's like yeah it feels like kind of peeling back layers and layers and layers well um Shannon I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me it's been uh, it's been cool it's been cool to hear about like your artistic journey and all of that yeah such a pleasure I'm excited to um, follow your social media and get those little bits of joy when you... <laughs> <laughs> right on. We'll definitely connect. Yeah. Some great clips from our conversation with artist Finnegan Shannon. Our season two finale featured New Mexico-born, Brooklyn-based chef Eric C. His restaurant, Ursula, was a 2022 James Beard Award nominee and a 2021 Bon Appetit Heads of the Table, Honorary. The conversation between Eric and Alan touches on Eric's love of hospitality, his journey to becoming a pastry chef, opening his restaurant, 
and his activism in support of the LGBTQ plus community in New York City. I'm your host, R. Alan Brooks, artist, writer, and professor. Today I'm joined by Brooklyn-based chef Eric C. Say hello, Eric. Hello, everybody. <laughs> hey, man, so to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about who you are? Oh, that, I don't know. What kind of podcast is this? Because there's a lot to unpack there. But um, <laughs> I guess on the surface level, superficial level, I'm a, I'm a chef in Brooklyn. I have been here for 12 years. I'm originally from New Mexico, from Albuquerque. And um, I imagine that I'm here because I opened a restaurant called Ursula, uh, mm-hmm. named for my grandmother, that uh, I opened at the beginning of the pandemic in Brooklyn. It's a celebration of the intersections of my New Mexican heritage and background and um, the queer community here in Brooklyn. Okay, that's really cool, man. I got to say, you know, we had a a chef on last season and um, my ignorance around the culinary arts rings true and consistent. But one of the things that I think is really dope is hearing about um, how this is an expression of what you believe um, and looking into your work, I know activism is a big part of it too. So I guess one of my sort of beginning questions is, how did you f- first sort of define your relationship with food? What was what stood out? What was the first time it spoke to you? Um, I, to be honest, I don't know that my relationship with food was defined uh, mm-hmm. early on. It was a relationship with hospitality, huh. and okay. and also. Um, I think that food is like the great connector across cultures and languages, uh, false boundaries of nationalism. And Uh I used to want to be a travel agent when I was a kid. That was like my dream. Okay. (laughs) I'm glad I didn't necessarily follow that route. I might be jobless today. Um, (laughs) Right. But uh, I just, I always love the idea of uh, cultural exchange and, and traveling and getting to hear and listen to new stories about people that I was unfamiliar with their traditions because you really only know what you know right. until you know something else. And so I really loved getting to experience um, cultures outside of mine. And yeah. I used to work in an airport diner when I was 11. Oh. And uh, there would be these pilots so be landing there all from different parts of the US. Just for a couple hours, they'd be exchanging stories about what they did in Nebraska or El Paso or wherever they were coming from. And just that exchange, I think, kind of really kind of uh, catalyzed more of my interest in, in travel and food and cultural exchange. Um, hmm. And I, I spent 14 years in the front of the house um, doing service and hospitality. I used to work at a, <clears throat> at a hotel in the front office, and I loved yeah. that. I just I like taking care of people. So... Was was that like the the interest in hospitality, the interest in exchanging cultures? Was that something you discovered in that position when you were eleven, or do you feel like it was just kind of always with you? I, I I get I would imagine that it's always been with me. Uh, yeah. There's there were a few pieces of that. I had a very like entrepreneurial spirit when I was a kid too, huh. and maybe what clicked then was like having cash in my hand. Uh, <laughs> right because being a little server at 11 years old and people giving you cash tips, I'd go home and like with little wads of, of dollar bills in my hands. And that was really uh, energizing my entrepreneurial spirit. I used mm-hmm. to sell newspapers 
outside the grocery store. I used to host little fundraisers at my elementary school to raise money for clubs that I made up. Um, <laughs> but I think it was just uh, the things that you don't necessarily understand to connect were probably the connectors when I was younger. Hmm. I, w- I want to hear a little more of like what your journey was. So like in high school, were you connecting hospitality with food? Did you, was it college? Like, how did you kind of find your way on this path? I would say that, yeah, it's kind of always been, it's always, it's been omnipresent my whole life. Um, mm. Wanting to be part of celebrations when I was a kid. Um, but mm. I've, in terms of hospitality and getting to like run my own show or like be my own act, uh, I've worked in restaurants. Um, since I was like 14 outside of this uh, illegal trade of child labor when I was 11. <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> but uh, I uh, used to run like the drive through counter at um, uh, a fast food seafood spot. And even that was like really fun for me. I just liked hmm. giving people their food and talking to them through the menu. Uh, I worked at a New Mexican restaurant in the takeout counter and I was a bus boy. I loved being able to talk to people about the menu and help them um, find the things that I thought they would like. I grew up outside of Old Town, Albuquerque. So the restaurant that I was working at was um, in a very like tourist heavy area. So I got to talk to a lot of people about the culture where I come from and the menu that I'm very familiar with. Uh, And that was exciting. I think... um, I've always, even when I didn't think I was going to go into hospitality, because it was never, it was actually never a a career path that I had envisioned. I went to college to study linguistics and I Hmm. thought about doing kinesiology. um, Hmm. And it wasn't, I was always waiting tables or like in a restaurant part-time from 14 on. And uh, it, it didn't ever strike me as a, as a career choice. In fact, like I, kind of looked down upon people that were career waiters when I was younger. And I was like, Oh, how sad to <laughs> be in this position and be 50. And uh. now to this day, I'm like, I get it. It's a love, it's a passion. And also I, as a business owner now, I kind of envy those people that were career servers because they have so much freedom in their life. Mm. They get to come and show up to work and do what they love to put on an act, to put on a show for somebody every single night. Right. Um, and then go back, then they get to clock out and go home and huh. not have to have to worry about anything else. And they have financial security and freedom from their job. And I envy that. That was a, something that I wish I had grasped yeah. onto at a younger age. But um, Well, you know, it's interesting because there's a lot of people who uh, look at food service as a career that you do while you're trying to do your real thing. Um, yeah. It sounds like you might have had some of that, but now you've found a life and passion within it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think I always wanted to be adjacent to food because it was uh, because it was adjacent to travel, um, mm. and and it was adjacent to linguistics. It was like all of those things were combined into, the, into this um, industry in hospitality. That I was like, wait a minute, I could do all of these things at the same time. Okay, so you went through this thing of um, working in different restaurants. Um, 
So was the next step for you to start your own or was it to grow within and establish one? How did that kind of work? Well, so I was waiting tables in New Mexico uh, 12 years ago. Uh Um, And my journey to the kitchen was a result of a failing relationship. Uh, (laughs) I, I was dating somebody who was a hairstylist and they didn't like that I worked at night. And the impetus was on me to change my life and my schedule. Right. And so I was exploring other avenues for um, what my career or future might look like. And yeah. so I decided to go to culinary school. Um, huh. And I started that and I was like, wait a minute. Uh, I, I started with the the idea of going into food and beverage management. I, w- I wanted to be like a sommelier or work with uh, like a bar program. Right. And then I was like, wait a minute, they work at night too. So that's not going to work. <laughs> um, and then I was learning how to cook and same thing. I was like, well, if I'm a chef, I still have to work at night and work on the weekends right. uh, on holidays. And so I decided to go down the route of pastry. And I huh. spent six months in Vermont doing pastry at a culinary school there. Because I felt like there was a little more... Um, variety of what your career could look like in pastry because if you're a baker you might be up at 3 a.m um mm-hmm. if you're a pastry chef your work is doing prep during the day and then your pastry cooks work at night um so i thought i thought i was like well let me tinker with this i was never really that interested in pastry mm-hmm. but going to pastry school and seeing the way that you could like manipulate these ingredients in such unique ways definitely caught uh my attention mm-hmm. I came to New York to intern. I was supposed to leave after six months. Um, But I um, had also realized that in New York, in in these big food cities, it's uh, your network is paramount to your pedigree. So I didn't go back to school because I had started to make some good connections here and I wanted to keep them intact rather than having to start over. And 12 years later, I'm here still. I have to say, like I said, it's fascinating. It's really dope to hear, like, uh, I don't know how you approach your art with this stuff. Now, I, I know a big part of uh, just your life is uh, activism, um, specifically, uh, well, particularly in the LGBTQ plus space. So um, I, I want to hear about how that connects with your, is it is it part of your culinary work or is it uh, sort of just like parallel to it? Um, it's both, it's both because it's my, it's part of my identity. Right. And you, that's inextricably tied to my, to my lived experience, which then is manifested in my food. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's also the people that are around me Yeah. Uh, at my restaurant specifically. It's, um, the people that work for me. Mm -hmm. Most of my staff is queer and trans identifying. Hmm. Um, a lot of my friends here in New York are. And I think that um, I've always wanted to have some connection to community at every point in my life. Um, but uh, there's so much going on. There's so many things, so many people, so many organizations and communities that need help and need resources. And it can just become very overwhelming right. if you don't um, focus your energy into something that is actually tangible because it's like well if i put 25 cents over here 25 cents over here like that's not doing anything so i'm like there there are people that have better 
resources or information to coordinate and help this organization. And I let them do that. Mm-hmm. And I can focus on my community because I'm in touch with it because I'm part of it. Right. Um, and I'd rather focus more energy on this one part. So it's been a cornerstone of my business for the last seven years, even before I opened Ursula to um, connect with, to fundraise for, to advocate for queer based organizations here in New York and around the country. Mm-hmm. It, it started actually with a fundraiser that I did at a market, um, huh. which it's really odd to have this conversation today, given what happened yeah. in Colorado Springs yesterday. Right. But my first big fundraiser was for the um, uh, the victims of the Orlando massacre. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess uh, just for people listening, we should note that we're recording this just a couple of days after the uh, Colorado Springs shooting in the Club Q. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I've been thinking about that a lot and I'm thinking about how that. So, OK, so for me. When I when I want to address a social issue or uh, try to make change, it is composing a story that captures some aspect of humanity um, in a way that hopefully uh, creates unity or compassion or empathy. Um, it seems like a lot of your creation is about community, connection, hospitality, things you mentioned, and specifically since this this bar. Uh, Club Q was about community and gathering. I want to hear, like, I don't know how how it is, how it sits in your mind. Like, when you want to use your creativity to engage with social issues, obviously, it's not going to be like me writing a story. So, what is that process like for you? Um, I think that that's a, again, it's like inextricably tied to my work because mm-hmm. food is political. Yeah, and um, it's the access to food. It's the access to um who who gets access to it who's making the food who is growing the food and harvesting the food um who's creating the policies um surrounding the way that our food systems work and distribution so it's Mm. like you can't get away from politics and food and uh so i think that it's on us to make sure that we um continue to advocate in ways that are supportive of our communities internally um because yeah you can't really get away from that yesterday actually the day the same day the same morning that we found out about the news in colorado springs i was part of a big fundraiser here in new york for the alley forney center it's a it's the country's largest uh lgbtq plus homeless and shelter and tradition transitional system um, they provide medical services and gender affirming care for trans folks. They have uh, temporary and long term housing for queer and trans people here in New York. Hmm. And we had spent months and months working on this dance a thon um, where it was going to be this day long event where there were different drag queens and DJs performing. They had a, uh, like a culinary corner with different queer chefs serving food. And uh, we raised about half a million dollars from Mm. this event. Um, Mm. But I remember waking up and reading that and uh, then having to go to this event and like be cheery and happy. Mm. But I was like, no, this is the reason that you have to have these events. So you have to continue um, expressing joy. And because joy is a form of resistance and the people that are threatened by that are the ones that want to take it away from you. So you can't stop. 
Cool. Hey, well, Eric, I, I really appreciate you talking to me. It's been a it's been a cool conversation. Thank you. I appreciate you all having me, and I I was really excited to uh, have a connection to the Rocky Mountain region. So thank you, Denver. Thanks for taking a trip down memory lane with us and reliving some great moments from season two of How Art is Born. We'll be back with season three, more interviews with artists about their origins and their creative and artistic practices with your host, R. Allen Brooks, this spring. <laughs>